Hello and welcome to the Arate Podcast. Today's guest is Jeffrey Forbes, non-executive director on a range of listed and unlisted organisations. It's wonderful to have you along today, and I hope that wherever you are and wherever you're listening to this podcast, life is happening for you in a way that's delightful, and you're achieving fantastic things. I'm looking forward to introducing Jeff Forbes to you in a moment, but before I do so, let me briefly introduce myself to you in case you're new to the Arate podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive, and we recruit CEOs, senior leaders, and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. And we also provide a range of career coaching and advocacy services for senior executives and non-executive directors who are looking for a new role. So if we can be of any assistance to you, I look forward to making connection and seeing how we can help. Let's get on now and introduce to you Jeff Forbes. After completing a Bachelor of Commerce at the University of Newcastle in New South Wales, Jeff commenced his career within the steel industry and worked both in that industry and then in the mining industry in a range of financial roles, culminating as the CFO of Cardinal Limited. More recently, he has moved to a portfolio of board roles and is currently on the board of PWR Holdings, Cardinal Limited, Heron Todd White Group, Horizon Housing Group, and Australian Affordable Housing Securities Limited. Jeff lives with his wife in Noosa Heads, Queensland. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Jeff Forbes. Well, Jeff, uh, welcome to the Arate Podcast. It's great to have you along here. Uh, perhaps just to begin the conversation, just have a chat to us about your current range of professional responsibilities. Uh, thanks, Richard, and it's nice to be here. Look, I um, retired three years ago now from Cardinal as, as a CFO. I, I just uh, decided at that point in time I turned 60 and I thought oh, I, I want to have a change. I, I didn't want to stop. I just wanted to have a change direction and mm-hmm. probably improve my quality of life. So I decided to go down the non-executive director route and um, as we sit here today I have two listed companies where I'm a non-executive director and chair of the audit committee and they are Cardno and PWR Holdings Limited, so different companies. I'm also an NED at um, an unlisted company, Heron Todd White. Mm-hmm. And I'm on a not-for-profit um, Horizon Housing, which mm-hmm. does affordable and social housing. Mm-hmm. So there's a bit of a broad range there. Okay, great. And um, and so when you made that decision, which we'll come back and talk to in more detail, but had you been on boards prior to exiting your full-time role? Yeah, I'd been an, an executive director at Cardinal for the, for the seven years I was there. And prior to that, I was at Highland Pacific and I was an executive director there as well. So, okay. So I... <laughs> I had a pretty good understanding of what was required. Right. Um, and what, what, and I should say, 
what wasn't required. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting. I talk to so many C-suite executives who are looking to exit and begin their portfolio career. And uh, some do it very successfully and others um, really struggle to build a good um, breadth of portfolio. But it sounds as though you've got you know a nice balance, not-for-profit, private, mm-hmm. um, listed, etc., uh, and we'll talk about how you were able to achieve that. But just uh, for my own interest, and I'm sure the people listening, so tell us about PWR. What do they do? PWR is um, a business which is based on Ormo, at Ormo, down um, halfway between Brisbane and the Gold Coast. Yeah. And it manufactures cooling systems for high-performance motor vehicles. Okay. And exports those globally. Right. So it's a very successful business, and... Um, you know, people talk about the the fact that uh, manufacturing in Australia is dead. Well, there's a good example of, you know, innovation which and IP where they've been able to tackle the world market. Mm-hmm. Innovation and niching, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, right. And is um, uh, high performance motor vehicles a personal passion of yours? No. Right. Okay. Oh, there you go. I'm not and, a redhead at all. Fair enough. And uh, what about Cardno? Yeah, Cardno. Um, well, that's an interesting one. Um, I was asked if I was interested in going back to Cardinal um, late last year, which I thought about. And um, now Cardinal is an engineering services business. It's the business where I was the CFO up until three years ago. Mm-hmm. So it's an engineering services and environmental business with a global footprint. Mm-hmm. A very uh, a significant listed company here in Queensland. Yeah, well, it used to be. It's right. probably less significant today. It's oh, well. it, market cap of Cardinal and PWI are probably the same today. Right, okay, well, that's interesting. And uh, and finally, Horizon Housing? Yeah, so Horizon Housing does affordable and social housing. It's mm-hmm. um, throughout Queensland and northern New South Wales. Mm-hmm. It's grown quite strongly um, over the past 10 years. It's um, is a good, profitable business, but also its essence is to you know, provide a service to the community mm-hmm. and to pour those profits back into providing those services of both affordable and, and um, social housing. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of my prior guests, Nino DeMarco, is on that board as well, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, Nino's the chair. Okay, great. And sorry, I skipped over Heron Todd White. So Heron Todd White is a property valuation company. Yeah. Um, it's um, Australia-wide, mm-hmm. about 800 employees. And uh, so it uh, undertakes property consultancy and property valuations throughout Australia. Right. So once again, uh, quite a, a breadth, not only in terms of the type of organisation, but also the, uh, the industries that they work within. Yeah, look, I found since I retired that, you know, um, I thought coming out of professional services and mining that that's where the attraction would be for companies to, to um, ask me to, to go onto the board. And I found that's not necessarily been the case. It's it's more been the skills base right. um, that you're there. And I guess I I've, was a experienced CFO, mm-hmm. um, experienced company director, mm-hmm. and um, ex, you know, an experienced CFO covers a lot of, a lot of, um, Skills that you can bring, you know, from from financing 
right through to, to cost control. Sure. And out of interest, because uh, I talk a lot about what we call the hidden job market, how many of those board opportunities were in the open job market where you applied through a recruiter versus being uh, you being approached uh, about the role directly? Uh, none. None. <laughs> All right, there's a lesson there, folks. And, uh, and it's we... probably fair to say that, you know, I've had several other um, NED roles in which none of which came through. Right. Recruiters, that, that's not to say I haven't been approached by recruiters, which I have. Sure. But um, those ones didn't seem to, <laughs> to go as far as the ones where I was approached personally through relationships or people knew of me. Yeah, I, I would say that uh, almost every non-executive director that I've had on the podcast so far in terms of their portfolio of board roles, none have come through recruiters. And I, so I think that that's a, an interesting statistic. But anyway, let, before we get to uh, you know talking about you uh, uh, moving into this portfolio, let's go right back to where it all began and have a chat to us about you know where you were born and grew up, mum and dad, brothers and sisters, etc. Sure. Well, I um, I come from Newcastle. Okay. Um, grew up in Newcastle town called Cardiff. Um, went through school in Cardiff, Cardiff High School. Um, what did my, mum and dad my, do? My father um, was worked in industrial relations. Okay. Um, in at Cornwall Steel. Okay. So he was a professional. Yeah. Um, my mother uh, didn't work at all through my career. Mm-hmm. I have a younger brother and a younger sister. Okay. My younger brother is two years younger than me. Right. And um, he he's now managing a, um, a German business across Australia. Okay. And and he, interesting enough, although he's been he's bounced around a little bit, he's still back in Newcastle. Right. Uh, my sister, who's twelve years younger than me. Okay. Um, she's in Melbourne, and she well. I'll give, I'll give, how would you describe what she's done? She's bounced around in the sense of a career, but I think now she's got the stage where she's doing social work. Right, to, okay, to sure. Activities and, and undergoing further study. Uh-huh. And so growing up in Newcastle, your father being in industrial relations, so within the sort of the heavy industrial um, uh, sector? Yes. Right, yes. okay. Yes. So it was in your blood from uh, very early. <laughs> well, I, um, I my, you know, moving on, when I... When I graduated and was looking for what I was going to do next. Graduated from high school or university? Yeah, from high, high school, school, yeah. yeah. Um, an opportunity came my way to get a marketing cadetship at Conwell Stirl, which entitled me to work plus go to university part-time. Right, so, okay. So um, I also started off in the, in the Stirl Works if you like, right. um, in an industrial background. Okay, okay. And uh, and so um, you went to university immediately out of school, you got yeah, your job well, and... Yeah, right. well, I went to university and I started work immediately. Yeah. So, so I effectively finished school in October, what I was, right. started work in the December. Uh-huh and um, started university in the February. Right, and because you were studying part-time yes. whilst working, how long did it take to complete your course? It was um, four years. Okay. No, five years, I think. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, but, you know, it was, it was pretty cushy in some ways. It wasn't the original intention, but I used to get, event, I used to get a day release, what's called a day release, so right. I would have eight hours off a right. week. Right, so being um, in jail. 
<laughs> so, um, which I could take however I wanted. Okay. So, you know, I was working four days a week going right. to doing uni one day a week and yeah. how I cut it. And the where I worked at Comsteel was about two kilometres from the university. So, okay. you know, you could flip backwards and forwards fairly easy. Right. And so um, you were doing a Bachelor of Commerce yeah. uh, rather than a straight accounting qualification. Yeah, look, I did a... Look, I started off marketing, marketing in the marketing team. The, okay. You know, Comsteel had this vision of... Um, and I was the first intake of having marketing graduates who then got they used in their in their product grouping. Right. Um, I was one of the first ones, so I was doing in the marketing department. I, I started working in the sales department. Right. Um, right back when you were 17, 18. Yeah, doing yeah. basically clerical work. Okay. Uh, and then. And as part of that, it wasn't so it wasn't an accounting oriented degree. It was yep. a, it was intended to move on to a marketing degree right. um, at the University of um, New South Wales. Okay. But so I did a mixture of economics and commerce. So I did fifty right. fifty. Okay. Economics and accounting, so I did 50-50. Right, okay. And so did you stay within the marketing department right through the whole of your uh, um, coursework? Yeah, as it turned out, I did. Right. Um, I never went to the University of New South Wales to do a marketing degree because I ended up getting married. Right. And um, wasn't keen to, to leave Newcastle. So I stayed, I stayed uh, in the marketing department doing commerce at Newcastle. And then what happened when I graduated, there came an opportunity to move to the accounting um, side of the, of the operation because the they had a, um, a def deficiency of graduates right. on the accounting side because the people who had a couple of tiers up had left so they, they were they were short of accounting graduates okay they asked me if I was interested I thought well why not so right. I moved into accounting then so I moved into the accounting at Comsteel and basically managed the accounts payable and accounts receivable team for and the rest is history yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Quite an interesting move, marketing to accounting. I mean, certainly uh, people would probably perceive those as being completely polar opposite skill sets, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, but I'll tell you what, I was glad I didn't uh, do my um, cadetship in the accounting department. Right. I think I had a lot more flexibility doing it through sure. the, sales, the sales and marketing team. And no doubt uh, having some... Uh, appreciation for sales and marketing was a nice uh, rounding out to what could otherwise a typical accountant you know not being quite um, unaware of the challenges of sales and marketing I imagine that having that exposure was could have been quite beneficial to you yeah look I, I because of that I really did understand the, the business and the mm -hmm. products mm -hmm. um, and in fact um, not about 12 months after I started my first role in, in the accounting function, I was then appointed the accountant for a foundry which uh, Comstell owned down at Lidcombe. Okay. He used to make um, you know, railway bogies and small small castings. Right. So, you know, I, I did have a good understanding of the business and a, a good understanding of the manufacturing process. Okay. And so you worked for that business for about eight years and then off to Queensland Nickel. Yeah, yeah. So 
which is a topical so yeah 1978 I uh, I had an opportunity to start at Queensland Nickel and I guess my thought process was what I saw within BHP mm -hmm. was that um, your promotion was a function of the people above you moving on or yep. being promoted. Right. And I guess around 1978, which I know is a long time ago, <laughs> and observing it, there'd been a, started to be a bit of a logjam, which was interesting because I got my first um, opportunity to move into accounting because a lot of people had left. Sure, yeah. So people had graduated, done their uh, original post graduate work for a couple of years and then left so okay. vacancies came up and they wanted young graduates so I I just saw that you know there was less and less opportunity to move mm -hmm. on quickly and you're yeah. likely to get stuck there and and um, not get any progression so an opportunity came my, my way to move to Townsville um, and I took it okay and uh, so not only moving uh, employers but moving states yeah and ending up in a, in North Queensland uh, no doubt would have had its own uh, uh, elements of challenge it was interesting to say say the least and you were married by then yeah married with one small child right I, yeah I think a two-month-old yeah okay and with uh, Queensland Nickel for a couple of years yep and then into CSR yeah so you know Queensland Nickel is an interesting experience but I think, you know, I did 12 months as a cost, I went up there originally as a financial accountant doing financial evaluation work and then I moved to the cost accounting role and um, I guess for various reasons I thought that it wasn't where I wanted to be for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. um, an opportunity, you know, CSR was in the process that stage, for those that remember, in the 1980s of taking over TEES, yeah. taking control of TEES, mm -hmm. and um, they were developing a coal mine in the Hunter Valley by the name of Drayton. Okay. So they were recruiting, I thought it sounded an interesting role, um, challenging role, so I put my name forward and um, was lucky enough to, to get it. Right. Um, you know, it, it meant moving to Musselbrook at the end, but that didn't worry me being a Newcastle boy, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, we moved from Townsville to Sydney, which was an interesting move. Mm -hmm. uh, and then overseas. Yeah, yeah. So what happened was, I, you know, Drayton um, got through the construction into operations and um, CSR in those days used to, every once a week, these sheets used to come around with all the jobs that were available within the organisation across all the divisions. Right. And um, I was sitting there doing my um, boss's job this day. He'd gone on holidays and sort of thinking, well, I'm not really doing anything different doing his job than I was doing in my own job. Sure. And um, he was a good delegate. <laughs> so I saw this job come up for a commercial manager in Jakarta for CSR Minerals Division. Um, they were in the process of um, in, you know, going through late feasibility on a gold mine in Sumatra. Mm -hmm. So I, I applied for that and um, yeah, the rest is history, so to speak. Right. And you took your family there with you? Yeah, by that right. stage I had three kids and right. um, you know, between six and three and my wife and we, yeah, we all packed up. Went Obviously uh, an understanding lady to have uh, moved around such a lot. Yeah, well, we did actually in the, yeah, we, we had because 
even in those days, we we bounced around. Um, even at Drayton, we bounced around between Sydney and Musselbrook a bit. And how did you find uh, working in Jakarta at the time? Uh, what was that experience like? Oh, look, you know, it was fantastic. Um, I think if I look back on my career mm -hmm. um, about what are some of the key moments, I think moving offshore where you had much more broader responsibilities. Okay. Um, and so there wasn't people, you, you had to be more of a generalist yep. than a specialist, but you, your responsibilities were the whole spectrum. I got, I got a lot of experience There was, um, and, and I think not only financial experience, but also commercial experience. Mm -hmm. We did a lot of negotiations with, on a whole range of things with government, with um, mining leases, with other companies, and you know, that, you know, that experience, I think, has held me in good stead okay. ever since. Okay. And, uh, and so from that point then, uh, another move to another organisation and what, back to Australia? Yeah, so I, um, I had CSR basically decided to get out of minerals. And so I, at that stage, my boss had moved to another company, which was a small company. I, he asked me to move with him, which I did. And then um, I stayed there for a couple of years. Then, you know, at that stage, I had five years uh, in Jakarta. So you then make the decision: do you stay? Do you stay offshore and become a um, professional expat, or do mm -hmm. you, or do you come back? And I, I sort of thought, well, probably the best thing to do would be to come back to Australia. So I was lucky enough to get a job with Kennecott Explorations in Sydney. Which was in the process of being taken over by RTZ, mm -hmm. and um, that you know the big asset they had, of course, was the Lear Gold Mine, and mm -hmm. that was in late feasibility. So mm -hmm. I, I elected to make that move. And you essentially stayed on with that organisation as Lear Gold. Yeah. So yeah. No. So I was there to, and wound down the Kennecott Explorations operations in the end, and um, moved across to Lear Gold, and then through that whole. Uh, permitting, uh, financing of both the equity and the debt and um, into construction. Mm -hmm. um, I left there because I, um, I had, you know, that role was going to Lahir Island. So yeah. the expectation was that I'd take my wife and mm -hmm. we'd head off to live on Lahir. Um, back in my Queensland nickel days, I'd spent a month um, at uh, Yabul, at Greenvale, um, being the um, the town manager, and I I had that experience of living in a small mining town. Right. Um, someone approached me about a role back in Jakarta. Mm -hmm. So I had you know we're here, Jakarta. I um, I decided <laughs> decided that Jakarta was a better option. Than right. A small mining town on a remote island in PNG. Uh huh. So I I, um, I went I went back to Jakarta into the coal sector as, as CFO. Right, and again another three or so years there. Yeah, two years there, and um, you know probably for family reasons in the end because the kids were back in Australia. Um, the eldest one had finished school, the other two were um, at boarding school, and and during the there the middle one finished. So you know we made a decision that. You know the kids are all right when they're at school. They probably need you more when you 
um, after they finished school. Right, okay. Um, and again, an opportunity came my way to, to go and work for Holland Specific as the CFO, mm -hmm. which I did, and I stayed there for eight years. Mm -hmm. And for a good portion of that time, acting CEO as well. I, yeah, the, the CEO at one stage um, had, um, yeah, couldn't, had to go off work. He, he had, um, I think, um, just trying to think what he had. But he, he had to have five months off, so I, I took over his Right. Okay. And so before we get into then Cardinal, which is your last significant mm. executive role, so what, what do you think was some of the... Uh, key learnings for you? I mean, you're changing, uh, essentially you're staying within um, a particular role family, but changing into different organisations, different geographies, you know, different styles of business. What were some of the, uh, the ways that you had to um, develop yourself professionally to be able to adapt, you know, on a fairly consistent basis to, you know, these fairly new environments? Oh, I just... Um I just changed with the, the role, I guess. What, you know, the roles that I were always one step up. Right. Um, I don't think I, I ever went sideways at all. Okay. Uh, and so, I guess I, uh, there's no simple answer. I, I, I just, you know, develop, whether I developed into it or, or I um, had good, good mentors, I don't know. But, it was just getting in and do it and doing the job. Mm -hmm. I I didn't um, I didn't do anything other than that. Mm -hmm. Do you think that you had any uh, sort of strategic plan in mind uh, to eventually lead yourself to a role like the one at Cardano, or is it more just by happen chance? Yeah, look, that's a good question. I I mean, one of the things that <laughs> That motivated me is I, when I first started work. There was a guy in the uh, I worked in the office who you know, used to be just whinging all the time about what he could have done if right you know, and what he could. So I had a um, basically a mantra that no regrets. Yeah. So if an opportunity came my way, I would weigh it up and think, well, if I didn't take this, mm -hmm. would I regret it? Right. And um, that's what that's what ruled my life. I think my vision was, I don't, I don't think I really had a vision. If anything, what I didn't like was routine. I didn't yeah. like being bored. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a good example is when I, when I left um, Drayton, you know, we were in operations, we were through construction, you know, life was a bit um, normal. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, that job became less challenging. You know, I couldn't see, necessarily see the next step up other than do my boss's job and as I before you know when I was doing his job I realized he didn't do very much more than what I was doing mm -hmm. so it's all about one step up I guess I, I always had so I always had in mind the next step up not the next three steps up right okay and 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 also getting as broad experience as I possibly could. Mm -hmm. And what about in terms of, you know, as you no doubt were moving into these bigger roles, you're managing larger teams and, and having, uh, you know, a more complex uh, uh, range of responsibilities. You'd done a Bachelor of Commerce, you know, early, early in the mm. day. Did you draw on any other kind of professional development or mentors or anything to, to support you when you were taking these step up roles? 
Yeah, no. The simple answer is no. Um, and why not? Well, probably I was, either I was always too busy, right? Or when when life started to settle down, I moved on to something else, right? So, you know, there was plenty of opportunities for me to do it. Yeah, but it was, well, the day job takes up the time, right? And um, <clears throat> so in the end, I didn't. Um, I. In many ways, my career path provided the life experiences. Yeah. And, you know, in various roles, I, I had good mentors, which also, which also, I think, provided more grounding mm-hmm. in developing my career than anything else. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, um, and then you moved into Cardno and were with Cardno for probably nine... Seven years. Oh, seven years. And uh, I mean, when you started in that business, it was very different to the business that you left. Yep. Um, uh, in many respects, an amazing story of, uh, of growth and diversity, etc. Talk us through, um, you know, some of that experience. Well, good. you know, Cardno's strategy was to diversify and not be reliant on any one market sector or any one geography. Mm-hmm. Um, it was also operating in, in a sector which was consolidating globally. Mm-hmm. So to be relevant and to survive, it was necessarily necessary to consolidate or otherwise someone would consolidate you. Sure. So the whole story was about broadening, broadening the footprint in Australia both by the skill base mm-hmm. and by geography and then realising that there are limited opportunities in Australia, um, whereas in places like the US, Europe, UK, there are a lot more opportunities. So, you know, 500 people firms in Australia, there wasn't very many, Mm -hmm. you know, 10 people firms in Australia, there's lots of them. Right. So, um, you know, to really grow and be of substance, it was necessary to grow overseas. and that's what we did with a strategy in mind to, you know, acquire complementary businesses, mm-hmm. but to treat them as mergers because, you know, at the end of the day, it's a professional services business. The assets walk in the door every morning mm-hmm. and work walk out the door every night. Mm-hmm. So it's not like a, a a mining business where you know the asset is mainly a resource or the, or the plant and equipment rather mm-hmm. than people. Mm-hmm. So you, you really have to do when you when you are. Merger, merging with another business, you have to keep the people on side because they are the assets and that's where the goodwill sits. Mm-hmm. So that was the focus. And for a long period of time, it was pretty successful. Mm-hmm. And you were there for seven years. If yep. you look back on that time and there was a particular key achievement you'd hang your hat on and say, you know, this is something that I was responsible for that I'm really proud of, that demonstrates, you know, why I was good at my job, what would that be? Look, to be honest, I don't think there was any one specific thing. I think it was a combination of factors. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the original debt facility we put in place early in the piece was pretty, were, provided a platform for growth. Uh, but I don't, you know, I, I don't think I could really point to any one thing. Right. I don't think, that was a catalyst. I think it was just many 
many things and, and doing those things continuously and, and doing them well. Mm -hmm. I note from your CV, uh, you mentioned uh, a particular achievement was um, 30 acquisitions over that period. Mm. So you're having to fulfill the responsibilities of CFO and company secretary and at the same time with such a, um, a heavy M&A uh, requirement, it must have been a big job. That's why I retired on 60. Um, <laughs> but I think one of the things is there was I had a good team working for me who could deal with the day-to-day -day on a you know on a supervision basis. Mm -hmm. So those guys got on with the the basics, or mm -hmm. um, the you know, but you you still had to, to keep an watch on a watch on them. So I I used to break my my time up. I reckon. 40% CFO responsibilities, 40% yep. M&A mm. work, and 20% um, investor relations. So that that was probably the way it would, would mm -hmm. have split up. And during that period, I think you say uh, it grew from about $180 million to over a billion dollars mm. in revenue. Yep. I mean, five times, you know, a uh, 500% growth in seven years is a... Um, Massive. When you look on um, uh, on that period, what were some of the strategic considerations that you and the CEO um, and the executive team and even the board had to consider when looking down the barrel of you know massive growth through acquisition? Uh, what were the key elements that you you kept front of mind? I guess there's there's quite there's a few. Um, the first one is that um, the people. That are on board mm -hmm. have the ability to grow with mm -hmm. the business. I mean, probably fair to say when I first went to Cardinal, that was that was probably an issue that you know that there wasn't that growth potential for for some of the people who worked there. They mm -hmm. didn't have the necessarily experience or or the desire, and you know change upset them. Mm -hmm. um, systems have to be able to grow and. Um, but by the same token, you need to not be creating too much change management in the in the businesses you're acquiring. Mm -hmm. So I always took a slowly, slowly approach there, but you know, focusing on on the on the key critical systems that visibility on cash, visibility on 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 performance, uh, and bringing information into the ledger through consolidation by, um, not by spreadsheets, but by um, uploading directly out of mm -hmm. their system if they weren't on the same system as us. And then, you know, in due course, moving them onto the same system as we were using. Okay. And so when you look at those 30 acquisitions, you know, what would be an example of one that went uh, really well? And perhaps what was an example of one that in hindsight could have been done a lot better? I like to, I'll talk about the one that went bad first, okay. um, because it's it's probably easier. And and this is an interesting exercise. It, in you know a lot of people talk about M and A and M and A size. And I guess since I retired, I've been involved with a few companies that um, undertake M and A and are saying, well, you know, it's only a small one. We don't have to worry about it too much. But that, the, probably the one that gave the most grief in my time was one of the very small ones okay where it was in WA there there was not enough focus done on 
your due diligence. Mm -hmm. um, we elected to do to have the due diligence on the technical side done by the WA team who didn't have the experience in that sector. Mm -hmm. It went belly up from that respect, resulting in you know, Cardinal's largest PI claim ever. Okay. So it was all about technical due diligence mm -hmm. and um, you know, not saying, well, you know, size matters because size doesn't matter. Right. Um, any acquisition requires the same amount of um, due diligence. Mm -hmm. So that was probably the, the biggest issue. Uh, just before we move on from that one, so in hindsight, would you have not have made the acquisition or just done it differently than it was done? In hindsight, we would have done the due diligence differently, which would have resulted in us not doing the acquisition. Right. Okay. Sure. Because basically, that they weren't they weren't um, um, up to their skill base wasn't up to it, and they they were, had jobs on their books that they was probably beyond their capability. Okay. Okay. And uh, a good one. Yeah, I mean, I, there was quite a few good ones. I mean, the good ones are the ones that just keep on keeping on. Right. You know, and I, I, there was quite a few of those. Yeah. And, you know, any acquisition has is not plain sailing from day one. Mm -hmm. You know, the economy is cyclical. Mm -hmm. um, acquisitions move with those cycles. So there was many ones that um, were quite, quite um, good and successful acquisitions. But if you took them at any point in time, you may have said, well, you know, today that's not as good as it should be. Mm -hmm. One of the things I used to do every year was benchmark the acquisitions. Okay. Um, and I not only benchmarked them um, on their financial performance, mm -hmm. I ben benchmarked them on a whole series of, of other non-financial non indicators. And I used, to I used to come up with a matrix mm -hmm. um, and a score uh, out of 10 and that was always insightful because you know you, you watch them move around a little bit but you know you, you could do an acquisition one year you know something could happen where which resulted in the performance was not as strong as what you thought but the year after or the year after that you know it was pretty well integrated and, and was hitting its targets mm -hmm. so I, I don't think I, th I think the key to successful M&A is to have a strategy, to not to be doing M&A for the sake of doing M&A. I, I, that is, not be doing M&A just to grow the revenue line. Mm. Bigger is not always better. No, be doing M&A because you, you have a strategy in place mm -hmm. and you are sticking to that strategy mm -hmm. and not to move from the strategy. Mm -hmm. when, you, when you get off that and you'll, you'll see a lot of listed companies non-listed companies have gone down this path and failed that you simply do M&A because you have to do M&A and you you do acquisitions which are not necessarily where this whether a strategically um, direction that you, the business should be going mm -hmm. but all they're doing is adding another revenue um, line to the business and would you say that Cardno was in some respects a bit of a victim of its own success in that regard uh, yeah, I, th I mean, it's a bit hard to say what, what, what the, no, 
not sure I probably should answer that. Yeah, that's okay. I mean, um, I remember at the time um, dealing with Cardno during that period, and it would be fair to say that you guys had an extremely strong uh, strategy uh, that was very clearly articulated through the business, and that was one of the things I think that was um, you know, a real strength of the business. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, you said earlier you uh, got to 60 and you decided time to uh, have a lifestyle change and move into this portfolio career. Was that something that you'd had in mind for some time or did you have a bit of an, an epiphany moment? I probably have had that epiphany moment about um, 12 months before I did it. Okay. So I actually gave the board and, and uh, CEO a heads up about 12 months prior to it. I guess yeah. it was was primarily driven by that I, I didn't want to continue being, you know, I, I've been driven by not getting into a rut, not that I was moving into a rut, Yeah. always wanting to change and mm -hmm. I guess, you know, I was getting to later in life, I was starting to have, you know, my kids were starting to do the right thing and I was starting to get grandchildren. Right. So, you know, quality of life was starting to become a bit more important. Okay. Uh, I was doing a lot of travelling and as a result of that travelling was spending more and more weekends away right. um, and I just felt it's time for a change mm -hmm. uh, but not stop as I said earlier. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that you have been approached about multiple board opportunities and mm. obviously uh, some you uh, have taken on and others mm. you haven't. Um, what are some of the things that you consider when you're looking at an opportunity to decide whether it's having as part of your portfolio? What what um, I basically looking for is a board which I feel the other members of the board are collegial, mm -hmm. so easy to get on with, you know, can relate to, in a sector which interests me, mm -hmm. um, and for a position where I think I can add my skill base. And so, going back to point number one. And add one. value, sorry. Okay, um, going back to the point about them being collegial, how, how do you um, do your due diligence on that prior to joining the board? What are some of the th questions you ask or the observations that you make too? I just try and meet with the people a couple of times. Okay, and so um, and also yeah, you can you can always ask around. Sure. So you you are you hanging out with the board at least enough to get a bit of a yeah. sense as to whether there's a good cultural alignment. And, uh, and do a little bit of uh, off-the-record uh, reference checking. Yep. Right, okay. And um, uh, in terms of you were saying that these opportunities have predominantly come to you, um, have you had any kind of view on essentially building your own personal brand uh, to make you a logical first choice for a board director? Has there been any kind of consideration for that? No. Right. <laughs> Look, I mean, I'm probably... I mean, I've probably been very fairly fortunate, Richard, and through circumstances, um, you know, I've had quite a few opportunities mm -hmm. come my way, um, and I've, you know, I've taken the ones I wanted to take, and you know, the, some of those have disappeared. Yeah. Um, through for various reasons, they they're no longer I'm no longer on those boards, which which has suited me. Mm -hmm. Um, I've just you know, decided that time has come and it's time, yeah. time to, to move on. But as far as the strategies or a plan, 
in place. No, I, I think, I guess if I do anything, and I probably do it subconsciously more than consciously, is, you know, I still, I still network, mm-hmm. um, but not overly so, mm-hmm. not, not, not a targeted network. Okay. Um, so were, were you earlier in the piece, uh, for want of a better term, a more proactive networker? It's a good question. Um, I probably was um, more so than now, but only marginally. With the specific view of doing it in order to get on the radar for board opportunities? Yeah, right. Make people aware. Okay, so what were some of the things that you would do then? I just accept any, any every right. every invite that I got. What's that saying? Uh, get invited to the opening of an envelope. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. basically. Oh no, look, I, I you know, you, I touch base um, with all the um, executive recruitment firms. Yeah. Um, about three months before I retired, that really didn't give me anything. Right. Um, and. Uh, can I still remember one 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 guy from one of the prominent um, executive search firms around said to me, you know, he said, if I've got a um, a search for a CEO, I might get two names from the chairman. Yep. I got a search for an NED, I'll get five names for every every NED on the board. Right. So I mean, and I think that's probably fairly accurate. Yeah. And I find that that's a really interesting point because uh, uh, the prominent search firms you're referring to, my big global brothers and sisters, uh, they still charge an inordinate amount of money to do board recruitment when the reality is it's so easy to do. Uh, uh, It's not as if you have to headhunt a CEO from a role for another role. um, You're saying, Jeff, I've got an opportunity. Have you got some room on your dance card? Would you like to consider it? So uh, it's interesting that they make that comment, but it's um, absolutely true. And so um, you you got out and you had a chat to the executive recruiters. You started to go out and be more visible at you know events and so on were there any particular you know type of events or occasions that you particularly uh you know got involved in were you, was aicd events for example a big part of your you know what were you doing i'm pretty slack at going to the aicd events i did i did one of the things i did do um, when i retired is i, I went and do became a graduate yeah um i, I think that's important definitely um i just uh, uh, even for myself, who you know, had been a, a director of listed companies for some time, mm-hmm. just just refreshing everything that you learn. And mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't easy. I I hadn't been I hadn't been to uh, school for you know, thirty five years, so sure. uh, doing that was was tough going. But it was interesting and good. The group I went with, there wasn't really any network opportunities that came out of that. Okay. And, you know, I, the law firms and the accounting firms all have networking opportunities. And right. if I used, you know, I just leveraged off, off those. Yeah. But I, I don't think any of the roles I got came through those networking mm-hmm. opportunities. The, the ones I got came through people I knew. Yeah, but uh, activity breeds results, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. Stay, stay, stay front of mind. Right. And so I often get asked the question uh, by people looking to move into a portfolio career, you know, how many board roles could I 
manage successfully and deliver good value? I mean, you made the sort of throwaway comment that you're retired, but you're obviously not retired with, uh, you know, four boards. Uh, mm. You're no doubt pretty busy. Give us a, a bit of a, uh, a view of what a typical month looks like for you in terms of being able to uh, be on four boards and, and do other things that you're doing. Well, first, probably, there's no such thing as a typical month, okay. but, um, and especially not a February or an August. Right. But oh, especially for someone like me who, who gets involved with audit committees. Sure. But basically, you are less busy um, at the start of the month mm -hmm. and um, fairly busy towards the end of the month. My first week, my, well, typical, well, as I said, there's no typical, but, well, generally, you know, be fairly quiet. I might, I might have one meeting, if anything, but, the, but there'll be other things, networking opportunities, right, or, or catch-ups with people, coming um, and, and doing a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, so those those sort of things. Um, then you'll typically have, um, and some of the boards are on, you know, audit committee meetings that start to to filter in in, in the second, second or third week and then the, the board meetings in the third or fourth week. Right. Plus, you know, there are other things that crop up. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I hadn't mentioned it, but I, I, I am on the finance committee for the Anglican Board of Mission, which okay. is a quarterly thing. It's a, it's a not-for-profit. I mean, that mm -hmm. crops up once every, mm -hmm. once every quarter. So it's, it's, it's the timing. I, I, just for my perspective, for me personally as well, I I um, actually live in Noosa, yeah, um, and um, and so I split my time between Noosa and Brisbane. Mm -hmm. So I try and schedule my my work week, if you want to call it that, from Wednesday to Friday in Brisbane, right? And not schedule anything in Brisbane Monday Tuesday. Doesn't always work like that, yeah. And then on top of that, you have strategy sessions. Mm -hmm. and, you know, if you've got a well-run, decent board, you will have uh, every year you will have a strategy session. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, very poor timing this year because in February I had two companies with strategy sessions in February, which is not good when you're on boards of companies that are also trying to announce sure. results. Right. And I've got another strategy session. So I've had I've got two days next week. I had two days this week and I had two days last week for okay. a strategy session. So though I do it, to answer your question, how many boards, I think it's a personal thing. Yeah. Um, you know, it's what, how much time you as an individual want to devote. Sure. And how much to, to being an NED mm -hmm. and how much you want to devote to doing, doing other things. Yeah. What about uh, the fact that, um, uh, I come to work, I have a job, I do that job for way more hours than I would hope, but uh, most people there have a role in an organisation that's their attention. In your situation, you're on four different boards, you know, across um, listed private, not-for-profit, different sectors, different industries and so on. How do you um, uh, manage your own headspace to be able to go into each of those situations uh, uh, and be focused and attentive to what's happening for that business right then at that time? Yeah, look, that's a good question. I think when I was an executive, I had such a broad responsibility mm -hmm. that you're always focusing on many things at the same time. Yeah. 
So I don't see it much different to that. Mm -hmm. I mean, the core, the basics are the basics mm -hmm. in any business, um, especially when, you, when your background is finance. Mm -hmm. So you just have to make sure you don't get senile and get the two businesses or three businesses <laughs> mixed up. Yeah. But uh, but stay and you know stay on top of you know the, the economic aspects. Mm -hmm. Stay on top of general trends. Know what's going. I mean, I I I still get email, um, you know the the standard emails from the banks and and others every morning, which I. Right. Read to yeah. know, so I know what's happened overnight. Sure. Yeah. I, I, I know what economic trends are. Um, so you do that automatically. Would I do that if I was if I didn't have any D rolls? Well, I would if they if they sent them to me. But I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know whether they would stop sending me if I didn't have those rolls. But you just need to have on keep on top of things and, yeah. and know what's going on in the world mm -hmm. um, and stay abreast of it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, a big part of the motivation for doing this podcast is for the community of aspiring C-suite executives and non-executive directors to learn from those who have walked the path before them. So if you had to, for a couple of minutes, just share your views on you know, what people should keep um, front of mind in terms of managing their own careers and creating opportunities for themselves, etc. Well, what would be some of your um, uh, key takeaways that you've learnt over your career? Uh, I think the key one, as I mentioned before, is never say, why didn't I do that? No, yeah. no regrets, mm -hmm. um, which is difficult. But uh, I think I, am, when I reflect on, on what I've done and where I've been, I, I don't have any regrets. Okay. Um, get the experience you required to, to take you on the path you want to go. Mm -hmm. um, stay, stay relevant, stay interested, keep active. Um, Keep a goal in mind, mm -hmm. even, you know, that goal might be five years, it might be three years, it might be two years. Right. I mean, when I was 40, my goal was to, when I turned 50, to buy a lawn mowing business and and, right. and just mow lawns. Now, you know, <laughs> that didn't happen. Right. Um, I don't, I know I don't regret that didn't happen. Right. But, um, no, I think, I think you just need to, everyone's a different personality. Mm-hmm. So I think, I th the other aspect, I guess, is you need to balance your quality of life with your work life mm -hmm. and, um, and maintain that. One of the advantages of, I've had and coincided with my retirement is, you know, grandchildren and, and um, you know, having a, day, having a day with my grandchildren right. um, as opposed to having to read papers. Do you think that you sacrificed some quality of life earlier in your career but now you're reaping the benefit of having done so? Yeah, look, I don't know if I sacrificed because I always enjoyed what I did. Right. Um, but did I miss out on certain things? Well, probably, but I take satisfaction out of, you know, I've got three kids. They're all happy. Yeah. You know, they're all, they're all married and they're all happy in their own lives. Yeah. I don't think they've suffered at all. Okay. So that's one... I, you know, if I had have devoted more time to, to being at home, would I, would I have been any happier? Yeah, probably not. Mm -hmm. But 
I think there was a time to draw a line in the sand and yeah. and, and I recognise that. Mm-hmm. But I think it is, I mean, it, I think it is important, as I said before, to, to set to set goals and 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 try try to attain those. And uh, that's a, a great segue because I mean, now if you look at your own goals for what else you'd like to achieve in your career. You know, do you have a view of you know what you'd like the next uh, you know uh, five or so years um, uh, to look like uh, in terms of what is within your portfolio, etc. I'm just no, no. Look, just what I'm doing now with the, probably the same mix. I pro- probably at the stage where I could, if a good opportunity came my way, I could do another NED role. Mm-hmm. Um, but it would have to be a right one, and I'd, sure. I'd have to, I'd have to want to do it. So, I'll, but you know, things come and go. I mean, you know, I was on the board of Affinity Education, which, mm-hmm. you know, got taken over by Anchorage uh, Capital. So, mm-hmm. you know, board roles don't automatically keep on keeping on. And I get, sure. and I also have a view that you know, you're only relevant for um, a period, mm-hmm. and um, you know, seven years is probably the max. So, now I. I don't know how long I will continue to do what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, I haven't said, well, when I'm 70, I'm not going to do this anymore. I haven't said when I'm 65, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm I'm happy with life at the moment. It's a good mix, um, and I'm enjoying it. So I'll continue to do it as long as I'm enjoying it. Okay. And other than uh, playing with your grandkids, which you obviously enjoy, what are the other things that you do? outside of work to keep uh, you uh, vital and the petrol in the tank? Well, I stay fairly active. As I said, I live at Noosa and um, so I, uh, I've got, I go to the surf regularly. Right. Um, get annoyed when there's too many other people out there. You're um, on, a, on a surfboard? <laughs> I ride um, uh, what's called a goat boat, All which right. is a, a wave rider. Okay, yeah. Because I'm too old to stand up. Right. Um, <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, no, I like to ride the... Um, the point breaks in the Noosa Head National Park. So I do that, you know, I, I go to the gym regularly. I, um, I play golf reasonably regularly. Okay. So yeah, watch sport, uh-huh. try and be active. Fair enough. Well, look, um, before we wrap it up, uh, any final things that you'd like to leave with the audience, uh, final comments before we call it a day? Look, I think in any career, um, unless you really want to be a specialist and, and go down a particular path and not move for it, from it, you need to get as much experience as possible. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think in my career there was two catalysts. The, ones, the first one was when I, when I left BHP and, and went to, um, to Townsville and the second one when I, was, when I went to J- Jakarta mm-hmm. um, the first time. Because I think those two things did more for my career than anything. So right. I, I think you really need to get as much and as broad an experience early on as you can. And uh, I think that's that's what that's what I think is the key to a successful career. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, look, uh, Jeff. Uh, thanks. I really appreciate your time. And uh, have a fantastic afternoon. Thank you. So thanks again for joining me today on this Aritate podcast and I'm looking forward to bringing you further interesting guests over the balance of 2016 and hopefully into the foreseeable future. In the meantime, before I have you along for another Aritate podcast, 
Have a fantastic day.